You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. I am your host, Calvin Moore. And per usual, I am here with my co-host, Kent Straith and Steve Phelps. What's going on, guys? Hey there, Calvin. How's it going? Hey there, Calvin. How's it going? Well, I hear an echo. Do you hear an echo, Calvin? Yes, I hear Come it. Come on. Yeah. Yes, yes. It took a second. <laughs> I dropped the ball. Dropping the <laughs> I dropped the ball. ball. Uh, yep. I, hand signal, nothing works there. Oh, I suck. Okay. Yeah, you can do. This episode is brought to you live from our homes, of course, because of, uh, of uh, COVID. Uh, we were hoping to be in studio tonight, but that, that didn't happen. Uh, and so I don't know what it is, but my dogs, for some strange reason, they can rest all day long. They they just lounge wherever the sunlight is beaming through the window. They they get up to move and, and fall down where the sunlight is hitting. And then I don't know if Zoom puts out a signal to dogs that says, okay, dogs, now is the time to do everything you're told not to do the rest of the day. Now's the time to be free. You know, because Calvin, my dogs are, are behind me going nuts. The dogs are not li- behind you right now. No, there are no dogs. You are a liar. There they are. Um, okay. No, Calvin, what I was going to say was no one else can see this except for the people on the show right now. But yeah. that is it. This is the best background you've had. Mm-hmm. Is that a fake? Is that a, is that real? Is that is that a real Christmas tree in the background? Or is that just your green screen? <laughs> okay, so for the view, for the listeners at home, Calvin has got up from That's his chair. Sight. I love sight walked, gags for, for walked back, <laughs> walked to the back. <laughs> I'm narrating. This is great. This is great radio. I'm. He walked to the back of his room, uh, put his hands out to show this is not a green screen, and then came back uh, to his chair. You know what's funny about and this? Okay, so so I, work a, I work a job where uh, obviously we're working from home now, and they say, you know, we, we got to do a bunch of meetings throughout the day. And they say, hey, everybody, everybody have your cameras on and your mics muted. And if you're at home, use the company approved background. So you mm. can't just have my you know your living room in the background because as i've already said my dogs are in the back wrestling and anytime i'm in a meeting they're like my kids so i don't really hear them too much because like a kid saying mom 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 dad 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 but then everybody else watching from home is like oh look at this cute dog wrestling around in the background so So we went we moved home yeah we moved home like years and years ago so for a while they want they wanted us to use uh cameras as well to try to incorporate a real uh, a, a reality of sorts uh, so that, you know, once every week or once every two weeks, they'd see, you know, we'd see our coworkers, but that meant people actually having to, you know, put clothes on and makeup on and it fell away after about six months. So I, I, I got to hand it to you if your company's still doing it because back three years ago when we moved home, uh, we all stopped doing it. After is there, is there weeks. something about, uh, is there something about your, uh, your, uh, company's zoom sessions that requires pants because uh they're it's not full body zoom right no it's not full body zoom you know but i think the, i think the bigger part of it was the hair and the makeup part okay all right people actually I, had to think about what they wanted to do uh at nine or ten in the morning and they didn't want to if they didn't have yeah to. For, yes. for a little while there uh i only did pajama pants but i don't get work done now unless i put on actual regular clothes i gotta actually mm. work and i gotta wear a shirt and, i actually have to wear a shirt and tie on screen at okay. all times, unless it's a Friday. Uh, I'm in a robe 90% of the time. I tell you, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm in a robe. I, did, 90% I, would, I would not, <laughs> I would not feel like I could do work uh, that way. Um, but it sounds like you guys are, you guys are doing okay. 
tonight's episode. We're before we, to- I, I just want to mention before we start the episode. Did did you hear that Rudy Giuliani has COVID? I did. I heard he not only had COVID, but he met with many, many lawmakers this week in Lansing with no I, mask and closed door, closed doors. I can only assume this is the easy joke. Um, I can only assume that he's being that he's being treated on the Upper East Side at Mount Sinai total total landscaping. Mm. Yes. Mm. Okay, that's good. Okay. That's good. I don't know when else is laughing right now, but Godspeed. I'm, I'm going to give credit to the mayor. For that. Yes. Yes. Okay. Greatest so tonight. Tonight's episode, and I, I feel like I've missed an opportunity here, and maybe I'll be able to do this next week. Uh, Kent, you sometimes do the segment, What's in My Box, and you yeah. open up something that you got from Amazon. I was going and, to uh, today, too. and then Okay, our, well, we just got know. too many guests, and we, we yeah. got to hit the road here. But uh, Tuesday is our trash day. But Calvin's going to do it. And because it's Christmas season, we've been ordering and ordering and ordering boxes. So I put out all of our recycle, recyclables last Tuesday. They came and took them. And then uh, the recycle box was full that same day because I've got that much in Amazon boxes. But right now my wife and I have a what's in my box, 12 days of wine where you like punch a hole in the top of the box and you pull out a bottle of wine. That's really cool. I'll do that next week. Okay. So that being said, we are into this week's episode. We're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to be revisiting Me Too. Uh, we're coming up on, you know, once we get to the inauguration of Joe Biden, it will pretty much be at the four year anniversary of the women's March. Uh, we've done a number of episodes talking about, uh, women's issues over the year, whether it's women in the workplace or just women dealing with sexual harassment. We've done episodes on rape culture. Uh, and all of that has kind of been influenced by the me too movement. That's been, uh, in the headlines uh, and, and definitely more uh, front of mind, at least the last four years, we've seen people in Hollywood get their comeuppance. We, we'll see that in a few minutes. We've seen people in politics uh, be, I think Al Franken lost his job or stepped down uh, as a, as a Senator. Uh, Harvey Weinstein was, you know, uh, lost his career, went to jail. Uh, Kevin Spacey uh, with the Anthony rap thing that happened there. Uh, that all was all, even though that was two men, that was part of the Me Too movement as well, or influenced by it. So we we wanted to uh, to that end, we wanted to bring on uh, four women to talk about Me Too, its influences, what they where they see it going, uh, how it uh, how it impacts different areas of life. But uh, in no particular order, I'm just going. Actually, I guess I'll go alphabetically. Uh, first up, and you can go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a, a little bit about you. Uh, first on the line, we have Miss uh, Miss or Mrs. Reem Abu. Mr. and Mrs. You want me to get all obnoxious about it? Sure. <laughs> it's Dr. Rima Busama. Oh, yeah, goodness. Even better. Even better. <laughs> I can go to four years of evil school to be called Mr. Evil. Um, <laughs> so uh, tell us about yourself, Dr. Abu. Um, uh, I, currently, I'm a middle school, um, high school social studies teacher. I teach at the Roper School in Birmingham. For I went kids. there. Are you serious? Well, you, know well, you bring years. that up every time you have but, a chance. Enough, Ken. But enough. Not- not, you went to, you're smart. Okay? Not to a you're roper smart. teacher. Yes. Anyway, I, uh, stop interrupting I, the guest, Kent. Let I was there go eighth, on. eighth and ninth grade. It's gr- it's great to see that there's now a second doctor there. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I graduated from Wayne State in 2014. Got my PhD. I focus on Muslim American identity, um, political science, patriotism, and things like that. Uh, I wanted to contribute to today's discussion um, from speaking from a woman's perspective in a general sense. Um, but who has been pretty open about the types of harassment that um, existed or um, 
sexually in regards uh, to the Me Too movement. Um, and then in general, just like I've written poetry about it and performed it. I also do spoken word. Um, but I, I've also, you know, wanted, I'm sorry, my kid is now in the background. So now I'm distracted just like the dogs. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's about me. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, next up on the line, we have Reverend Ruth Everhart, the author of the, I believe it's the upcoming book. Uh, maybe I'll, I'm not sure at this point, the Me Too Reckoning. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your book, Ruth. Uh, hi, so I'm Ruth Everhart, and my book did come out in late January. So I was just kind of launching it when the pandemic started, had a whole lot of speaking events and so on that got canceled. Um, but yeah, the book has been out uh, for a few months now, and it's called The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. And I'm speaking as a pastor in a liberal Protestant tradition. I wanted to address the abuse that I saw that wasn't being uh, handled very well in, in our world. I, you know, the Catholics have gotten a lot of press initially more lately. Some of the evangelicals have um, Southern Baptists and so on, but I really wanted to address the stories that I saw in the progressive Protestant traditions. I'm a Presbyterian pastor have been for 30 years. So, Ruth, my uh, expectation when I hear liberal Protestant and uh, female pastor is that you are a giant Donald Trump fan. Well, that would be completely wrong. Completely wrong. Okay, I will. Uh, I back. Wrong. Let me back up. Then Kent, Kent is not as smart as his Roper education. Nope. Is, nope. Roper, Roper failed me. Ruth, you will get you're used missing, to. <laughs> you're mixing up the evangelicals and the liberals. No, I. <laughs> okay. Uh, Thank you for being here. Uh, Thank you for being here. Uh, Next up on the line, we have a longtime fan, (laughs) I believe, uh, used to be a guest all the time, but has gotten too busy running her own podcast empire out there. Uh, Mrs. Jen Kinney, welcome back to the line, Jen. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I've missed you guys. Thanks for having me. Um, My name is Jen Kinney. I am a writer, podcaster, uh, and I was an anti-trafficking activist for about 15 years. Uh, prior to that, I did a lot of work in domestic violence shelters. Um, so I'm here lending my voice uh, and my experience, one, as a survivor of assault, but also just as a woman. Awesome. Always glad to have you on. And then uh, last but not least, obviously not least in my life, uh, the beautiful Mrs. Jennifer Moore, despite the fact that her name still says Jennifer Travis on the screen. I don't know why, uh, but uh, my, my beautiful we wife know is why. back. Uh, Jennifer, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so I am here just because I am growing increasingly um, just passionate about just women using their voice and speaking up. And um coming from a denomination where uh in church where that was you know kind of um downplayed or shamed um just really feeling like women need to have a voice and as a woman that has been assaulted as well i think that it is far too common and just here to to give that voice for people who maybe are still too afraid to. 
Awesome. Thanks so much for being here. So let's uh, let's dive right into questions. Um, Me Too kind of started as a as a movement against sexual abuse uh, and and sexual harassment. How has the movement morphed over the last several years, especially within the last uh, four years of the current administration? I know it really kind of took off during that time. Uh, but how have you seen uh, the movement change over the last four years? And anybody can answer this in any particular order. Just uh, say your name first, and then we'll be off to the races. I guess I'll start. Okay. Uh, this is Reem. Um from what I understand, the Me Too movement started in order to just raise awareness regarding sexual abuse and harassment that women face, whether they're cis or trans. Um, it was so that men could face the reality of how women in their lives had been subject to sexual harassment. It was so that women could hear each other's stories um, and not carry the shame or the guilt or the blame um, to find power in numbers and solidarity. Uh, that it, you, the, the Me Too movement, and I'm never sure if I'm supposed to say hashtag Me Too or not, but that's okay, um, seems to have evolved into a place of being um, where uh, in which accountability and action is now being grounded in that solidarity um, and that women who have been subjected to the abuse can demand that the men in power who model this abusive behavior be confronted publicly um, with their actions. And more recently, um, there's a, res- uh, a larger resurgence because of the Zhang Zi, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, case um, of harassment in China, where um, she reported uh, this famous Chinese TV host, uh, Zhang Hu, um, who was like basically harassing her in the dressing room. Um, So it's now taking legal action on an international platform. Um, And so the evolution of it is rather than just storytelling and reminding and solidarity, it's now about action and accountability. That's what my assumption is. Yeah, this is Ruth uh, speaking up, Ruth Everhart. I uh, Thanks for that kind of background. I agree that we're moving towards action. And I think that the movement itself has become kind of gotten its legs and has become shorthand for the reality that women face in terms of abuse being as common as it is and that that's no longer silenced or seems uh, unusual people say, oh, no, that can possibly have happened um, or that person couldn't possibly have done that. We're not surprised anymore. It doesn't seem as shocking. And so I think it's uh, becoming uh, part of our culture that this is something that this is a justice movement that that needs to uh, move into kind of a long term process. Uh, It's become mainstream and. that's my thought. Jen Kinney here. Um, I have a couple of thoughts. One is um, more of like a story. When Me Too first really took on some steam, I remember being in a room with five friends who I had been friends with for a very long time. And we all started kind of talking about our experiences and it really destigmatized. Like my experience that I've had is that this movement has, with its flaws and um, and issues, it has destigmatized the conversation in ways that I wasn't even aware the stigma still existed. Because I consider myself kind of an outspoken person. I share my stories and and so on. But what I realized is I started 
moving from social situation to social situation where I was with large groups of women, including family members, people started opening up and sharing their stories of assault in ways that I've never experienced before. So it also opened my eyes to the statistical frequency. Like I know the stats that Rain puts out, but I'm questioning that those are even valid stats at this point. Because time and time again, regardless of the room I'm in, whether women, you know, various social backgrounds, various ethnic backgrounds, various ages, um, and, and we all have very similar stories. And so I'm starting to ask the question, is this even more pervasive? And is this even bigger than we have been trying to tell people that it is? And so that's one thought. The other thought too, and the thing that I really started to experience, I actually wrote an article for Blunt Moms a few years ago. And the reason that I wrote the article about it, and it was about the Me Too movement in a sense, was actually from a male friend of mine. And so I started noticing that men were also feeling courageous to come forward and talk about where they'd been assaulted. And so in general, I just feel like it's really broken open this conversation in a way that we need to reckon with. And um, that's what I'll say about that. Um, I think that to piggyback on to what Jen Kenny was saying, this is Jennifer Moore, um, that it did, a, it did exactly what you were talking about. It made it undeniably obvious how prevalent sexual assault is and also how how much women have been taught to keep silent and to just deal with it or to be ashamed that they were a victim um, rather than realize that that they you know that shouldn't have happened and it's not their fault. Right. I think that women have been taught for years to, you know, not just that they were a victim, but also to carry the weight of the blame as if they were the perpetrator to some degree. Um, because we talk about what women wear or whatever to put the blame and pass it on to the victim. Right. Um, and so I also think that it made it more relevant to to hit home because you also realized how many people just around you were victims that never felt comfortable with even sharing it with their families with their friends until then um and i think you're right also seeing how many men spoke out was was really eye-opening also um i'm just going to throw in a bonus question and uh, if anybody feels that they're uh, able to answer it with authority, uh, please chime in. Was there a official uh, quote unquote beginning of the movement? Because um, I because as a as a man, uh, let me say my opinion is important. Uh, it, as a man um, who who follows the news. Pre- on, uh, pretty obsessively, I would say on an hour by hour basis, I was certainly aware of and followed the women's march uh, in January of 2017, but I did not, I didn't hear the words me too attached to that. Ironically, the first time I ever took notice of it was later that year 
uh, in a situation involving two men, and that was uh, Kevin Spacey and Anthony Rapp. Was the first time I ever remember hearing the hashtag. When can can somebody tell me when the movement was born? Yeah, um, I think there's like multiple uh, narratives, I guess. So the first um, use of the word Me Too on social media in reference to sexual assault, it was by um, Tarana Burke. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. Okay. Um, on MySpace back in the day. Um, and oh, it was MySpace. It was, yeah. So it was to kind of build solidarity around sexual abuse, particularly with for women of color. Um, and then later on, around 2015, there was an, a resurgence of the ha- or the development of the hashtag. Um, and then later on, it just became more and more um, popular until it reached its main peak, I think, in 2017. So, okay. Um, would you say? Um, would you say that the movement has received any? I mean, of course, the movement has received backlash. Uh, do you think any of the backlash that it has received is warranted or deserved? I don't know if this question is back right at me. This is Reem again. If my sure, this is this one's for everybody, but you're okay. talking. Knock yourself out. Yeah. So um, I was uh, reading an article a while back. I think it was like from the Harvard Business Review, which talked specifically to that question about backlash in the workplace. Um, I'm not really going to talk about that, but generally speaking, it was about the fear of men getting caught. So they start masking their behaviors and things of that nature. Um, and then uh, employers refusing to hire uh, more attractive women and whatever. So that was like an like a workplace um, backlash. But the biggest backlash that I see from women is that women are being derailed as a as though they're making a big deal out of nothing um, or exaggerating uh, reality. Um, the other thing I see is women being gaslit um, and the blame is turned around and thrown on- onto them. I still see conversations into like now about, you know, people, both men and women alike, making statements like, what is she expecting when she's going out in an outfit like that? Or um, as someone myself has been told, like, I deserve to be raped because I didn't want to go out on a date with someone. Um, I don't find like it's all unwarned, like it, it shouldn't be happening, right? So even if a woman does dress, quote unquote, inappropriately, right? Or if even if she is making a mountain out of a molehill, she still deserves the ability to speak her truth. The backlash is definitely unwarranted. It should not be happening, right? That those other stuff are just like, it's just gaslighting. Like it's not okay. When you say uh, men masking their behavior, what, what does that mean? Finding ways to harass without getting caught. Okay. All right, because when I, when I f- first heard masking their behavior, my first thought was um, if someone is behaving in a toxic way and then they stop that uh, in, to avoid getting caught, that seems like a net positive. But if they're still engaging in the behavior, but in such a way that's less obvious, that's, that's bad. Um, Jen Kinney here. I don't know if you want us to say that every time we pop on, but okay. No, okay. So anyway, um, I have two thoughts. One, just to kind of follow up with what Reem was saying um, with regard to the backlash. Um, we live in a country where tens of thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of rape kits sit untested still to this day, despite widespread efforts to change that. So, of course, we're going to have a backlash when we start to turn the system that has been in place on its head. 
So definitely there's backlash. There's always going to be backlash, I think, at least as long as I live. Um, One of the other things that I thought about, though, too, with regard to backlash is within the movement, the fact that Tarana Burke brought this up and was doing this work in 2006. And it really wasn't until 2017 when Alyssa Milano talked about it. There have been a lot of conversations within the movement about just sort of like the toxicity within white feminism and the problems there with the silencing of black, brown, and other women of color in in these, these conversations. And so that's something I think within the movement that we as women really have to dig into and lean into and contend with. Um, how we're doing that, though, um, you know, in pockets of conversations, um, people are talking, but that is really something that we need to address as well. So, um, and also something that I remember coming up prevalent, like with a lot of prevalence, even in the news cycles, um, was there was a lot of um, counter movement to essentially say that that these women were making false claims. And, you know, essentially to say that the victims were the men, um, there was a big backlash and pushback that came out um, pretty close to when things really started to, to, to grow and build. Um, essentially, I think even, if I'm not mistaken, that our president, current president, said something along the lines of that. But maybe um, somebody else can remember the exact details of what he said um because it it is escaping me right now but there was a lot of backlash essentially where men were afraid that they would be falsely accused which is going back to what reen was saying as well about um covering up the their tracks right so they were looking at you know cya as people call it um in in the business world right um looking at what they can do with, um, you know, HR and and et cetera. But the idea that the majority of women that were making these claims were just trying to, you know, get some kind of vindication or were making up these stories um, and the vast volume of them, um, the idea that the amount of these stories um, at that volume could be fake, um, it, it, it goes along with the, I think, paradigm or the idea that we're seeing with the false news trend even. You know, we, we don't want to believe what we don't want to believe, right? And so we are willing to, to come up with these altered narratives to justify and keep things the way that they are, or that they're comfortable. And I, I, that's what I noticed as well. Yeah, I would agree, Jen. This is Ruth. Um, And I think we saw that really the most on campuses. I mean, campus assault is a big issue. And under the Obama administration, there had been some movement in terms of making it more possible for people to bring charges under Title IX. And there were was a lot of movement and there was then, you know, backlash when uh, Betsy DeVos took over uh, education and big concern voiced and expressed about uh, uh, 
people on campuses who were acute, be falsely accused, even though the statistics, you know, don't bear out that concern. And so, yeah, there, I think I saw the biggest backlash among, in a sense, some of the most vulnerable women who are, I think, who are students. I think that's a cause for concern. And just to bring up to you, I think we saw a disparity in, in that backlash of race as well. For example, we all know Brock Turner, you know, everybody was concerned about his life being ruined when he was just getting started. And he essentially got a slap on the wrist. Whereas, you know, any person of color of with an even lesser protect, you know, possible, um, when I say lesser, it's all assault, but I mean, maybe didn't even do to the, um, the level that Brock did and got an even stricter, you know, sentence. Um, but it, it seems like only men of color are getting prosecuted to the extent of the law and every other man, um, was getting let off the hook. And and let me not just say men, obviously, like we talked about, there are men that have come forward too with assault. So I don't want to just say, um, you know, the, the paradigm of a heterosexual man and woman, you know, makeup, but you see that predominantly. Let me, let me throw something in here, just based on some things that have been said, especially around the issues of race and that tends to be my focus. Um, my and I and I've said this quite a few times, and it sparked fantastic conversations on on Facebook and other areas of social media. But believe her, that was another hashtag that came out, you know, out of the Me Too movement as well. I believe her, rather than wasn't, just being suspicious. Wasn't it believe women? That's believe believe women. Believe, okay, believe no, women. Believe women. Yeah. Sorry, I got that wrong. So believe women. But essentially behind that hashtag was instead of having a I, I doubt her from the jump mentality, believe her until you're given another re- a reason actually not to. Like there's evidence to the contrary of what she is saying. Right. Um, we saw this quite a bit with the um, the confirmation of uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Right. Uh, so but. When it comes to the race issue for me, again, since that's my focus, I have studied for years the black experience, right? And I have studied the incidences over and over and over and over again throughout the history of black people in this country, and even earlier than that, of particularly white women lying about black men. Uh, Emmett Till is like the biggest name we know for this, right? Uh, hey, he whistled at her and then they bludgeoned him to the point that, you know, you shouldn't have had an open casket, but his mom said, we're going to make sure that she, ha- you know, he has an open casket. And then years later she said, ah, and it didn't happen and nothing happened. Or I think she was in her nineties when that happened, but Hey, that's just one case of many where we saw that happen. So my inclination, especially in, in today's day and age is to believe women when Hey, this guy did this. This is what happened. Believe her. That's my inclination, my desire. But then based on my study and my experiences, Jen, you, you've seen me be on the wrong side of an accusation. There's this other side of me that goes, what's the color of the person making the accusation? 
And what's the person? What's the color of the person having the accusation made against? Like, if it's a white woman talking about a white dude, okay, I'm there all day. But if it's a white woman talking about a black dude, I'm kind of like, oh, and and I hate to be in that space, but experience has put me in this place where I want to believe women. That's my general disposition. I'm trying to work towards, but there's also this side of me that's going. I can't just do that because more times than not in my experience where I come from, it has not been the case. So when you bring in, I guess, the intersectionality of race into this, uh, we haven't even talked about Toronto Burke not really getting the credit for even starting the movement, right? It was, uh, I think you mentioned Alyssa Milano years later, uh, you know, getting more credit for kind of pushing this forward. But what are your thoughts when you bring in the dynamic of race into this situation, especially the relationship of, you know, white women and black men over the years? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Calvin. And I'd be curious to know what your personal experiences are. I mean, I hear your point about Emmett Till. Um, I'd love to hear uh, more recent stories. Um, I'm statistically unusual experience. Mm -hmm. I wrote, the reason I wrote this new book, The Me Too Reckoning, is really a follow-up on a memoir, memoir I wrote called Ruined about my experience as a victim mm-hmm. when I was in college, my senior year of college, two intruders broke into my house when I was living mm. with friends. They were black men breaking into a house of white women. Mm-hmm. And... They, those two, um, those two criminals had been operating for a year and a half in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our case was the one that the um, detectives were able to catch the men, and our case was the one that they took to court. So I was in that position of being a white woman, accusing two black men of black rape, men. Right. and then of testifying against them, hmm. and. That was back in 1978. I mean, I'm really old. And that was 40 years ago. And when I look back at that experience now, I can definitely see how integral the race piece was on a lot of levels. I mean, the vigor with which they pursued these two men who had been operating for a year and a half, as I said, and who had committed murder um, against some of their victims. So this was, this was a very serious case. But I'm also aware that the fact that the victims were white um, probably fueled the vigor with which they pursued them. And then when it came time to the testifying in front of a jury, um, I think it was very powerful to be... We were all... C- attendees at a Christian college um, bringing uh, speaking against what these uh, guys had done and they were punished pretty severely um, which was appropriate but so statistically that puts me in a very small slice of American women who number one I mean it's not statistically unusual to be raped but to see your Uh, rapist apprehended and brought to justice. So that informs my experience in terms of, I'd like to elevate the role of the pursuit of justice much higher than uh, 
people often do, and especially Christians. Christians often talk about this as being about assault being a sin rather than being a crime. So this is one of the things I talk about. But when you bring the race piece in, it also puts me in a statistically unusual place. And that's been very painful in a way to then try to temper now with experience post that, because that was, and I deal with that in in my book, um, the memoir, the kind of the racial wound of being someone who was very naive about race had been raised very much in a white bubble in a white Christian bubble. And then to have this, you know, incredibly traumatic experience of being raped at gunpoint by intruders, um, fearing for my life. So yeah, I, I, I would love to hear your stories too. And, and, and I, I don't know how to, how to, how to balance those all out because yeah, white women have historically falsely accused black men, but I'm in the case where a black man sought out white women as victims. Right. And first, thank you for sharing your story. Second, that's terribly shitty. And I'm sorry that that happened Um, to answer your question, I guess. Uh, without getting in entirely too personal, I've had I've had it happen to me personally twice. Um, so I am when I'm speaking of, hey, I've studied the history of it. I've got the case studies of it. But then in my own life, it has happened twice. I lost a job um, because there was uh, this is my second marriage that I'm my final marriage that I'm on. But uh, uh, I was married to my ex-wife and there was a young lady at work who was very interested in me. And I was not interested in her and broke off our friendship when it got inappropriate. I was like, Hey, you know, I'm married. I thought we were just friends at work. And she proceeded to say that I sexually harassed her and she felt uncomfortable working with me. I didn't speak to the young lady. I broke off our friendship. Like we did not talk anymore. I uh, didn't go to lunch with her anymore. Uh, and I started hearing whispers mainly from other black people at work. Hey, uh, I don't know if you can tell they're starting to like interview people about things. So if you get called in, just know some stuff's going down. Like, okay. I don't, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to work. No big deal. Uh, and I got pulled in and interviewed by two white women talking about a white woman who had accused me of, you know, making her feel uncomfortable at work and sexually abusing her. And I lost my job over it all because I stayed faithful to my now ex-wife. Uh, and now that ex-wife, uh, this one was more of a kind of a sketchy deal. I was asking for more time with my daughter, uh, and she made up a fake accusation to try to, uh, get the judge to not give me the time. The judge saw straight through it. Like, did you say this when you got divorced 16 years ago? You're not bringing this, this up now. You, you saw her roll her eyes. I see this all the time when somebody tries to say, I don't want the dad in their life. Oh, well, he did this thing to me. So I've had those two, but there is still a false accusation nonetheless. Right. So I've had two false accusations, one that made me lose my job, one that potentially uh, was going to make me lose time with my daughter. And then there's the study behind false accusations of white women against black men over the years. And so for me, that's where that's the experience I'm bringing to the table, which makes me go, okay, um, 
you know, w- w- what's going on? Like there was a dearth of evidence against like Harvey Weinstein. So like everybody knew what was going on. Um, there was a dearth of evidence against Bill Cosby. Everybody knew what was going on. Even Hannibal Burris was making jokes about it in his standup years before people actually did anything about it. Um, in these kind of cases, though, I think there is, like you said, there's that tension of, you know, race. Like would, would your case have even gotten the sensationalism or focus that it did had you not been the victim? And that's a sad state of affairs. On a, that's the whole other question on the justice system and how it works. Or, or had the perpetrators been white as well. I was right. saying the and, same thing. And so I guess, um, I mean, thank you for allowing me to, to speak. I don't want to center myself on this. So we'll, no, we'll get back to the questions here. Thanks for sharing but... your stories. I don't mean to talk over you, but I, um, no, I'm really, I'm grateful that you shared them and, and I'm sorry that that happened to you. And right. it, it's showing what your vulnerability as a black man, what, where you can be hurt. And um, yeah, but I, I guess in the end, I don't want the experiences I've had. I don't want the history of what has happened to black people uh, in this country to take away from the fact that very real stories, very real terrible things happen to people. So if you had come to me in the 1970s and said, I was raped by two black men who you know came into my house. I, I hate that. Because of my studies, my first thought would be like, yeah, that probably didn't happen. Right? That, that's, that's where my brain goes. I have to tell my brain not to go there. But I, I hate that that's, a, that's the reality. And that's not the reality for most people I talk to. I've talked to people who are like, what did the girl think was going to happen when she drank too much and Brock Turner raped her in an alley? I'm like, she thought she was going to have a hangover in the morning. That's what you would think, right? So I... Anyway, I'm babbling at this point. Um, so we've both shared our stories. Thank you for sharing yours. Thank you for allowing me to share mine. Let's uh, let's uh, hop to someone else on the same. Are we still in the question? I don't know. Or do we meander? <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna move on. All right. <laughs> you know. All right. So, uh, Jen Kenny, you said earlier you mentioned um, uh, Alyssa Milano earlier. Um, is kind of that's where so the funny bit the hashtag took off. And I know back in 2017, actually that's where I first heard. I first heard about me too. And I think a lot of people did. However, uh, what you said also is that Toronto Burke really, uh, 11. You're on mute. I accidentally muted you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Where do, what part did you, what part did you mute me at? Start over. Okay. Toronto Burke. Toronto Burke. Yes. All right. So, uh, where she started the movement really back in 2006, um, but a lot of people like myself didn't really, uh, see the hashtag and, and understand until maybe 2017. Um, so let's start with, I mean, do you think that she gets enough credit for spearheading this movement or do you think this whole idea regarding credit is just a way for opponents to create divisions in the movement that is based on bringing people and their voices together? I don't know if this question would go. Was that a question for me? And then it's a question for the it's a question for the group. For the group, okay. Reem, why don't you? Oh, okay, cool. Um, that's oh, mainly because I'm so impulsive and I can't control myself. And I need to learn it. Like I need to learn to control myself. <laughs> but um, I don't think she gets enough credit. Um, but I also agree with the second part of the question of like, does it create divisions or unifications? Um, I do think that there's some level of uh, division creating when when the narrative is brought up. 
Tarana, uh, Tarana Burke deserves to be given the credit um, to not acknowledge her pivotal role in creating a narrative in, like back in 2006 is like bland allyship. Like it's some, I keep talking about and, and pardon the way I say this, but like the, the white allyship, that's not real allyship. Like that's what I'm thinking of um, the intersectional nature that Tarana Burke like envisioned in her Me Too movement gave a voice to women of color. Uh, to not credit her just reminds me of how, and I think Calvin did bring this up, not really directly, but um, just reminds me of, you know, how white women were partly responsible for delaying the right to vote for black folk in order to attain white female suffrage at the expense of others. And so, yes, white women at the time were also disenfranchised, but met, for many of white suffragists at the time, there was no solidarity. So today, when people derail the issue of Tarana Burke by saying that, you know, that was a long time ago, this doesn't really matter, taking away from the cause right now, um, by saying it's dis- d- divisive, it reminds me of just how out of touch and the specific bland brand of activism with intersectionality is just like it's not intersectional it's a perpetuation of racial discrimination and it hits at directly black women um so uh in their erasure basically sorry and, and it's, and it's, to that yeah. end, it's, it's interesting that there are no black women on this panel tonight um and i asked a few that i'm in uh, you know at least decent relationships with online part of a few anti-racism groups online that only have black people in them on um, the anti-racism groups that have black and white in them. And I asked a few black women if they would be on tonight and they're like, do you have a lot of white women on as well? I was like, well, yeah, I have whoever comes on who says they'll, they'll speak up. I'm like, I'm not interested. I'm just too tired. It's just kind of, it's, it's, and I've had episodes where I've had black women just speak about black women issues, but there seems to be this, this feeling like, yeah, that there's there's been an erasure of black voices, and I don't have enough time in my day to have a conversation about feminism or Me Too with white women because it seems like we're having two different conversations. Have you all run into that at all? Yeah, and and we are having two different conversations. And I really think like when Steve posed the question, you know, I think about well, who are the people on the outside who are talking about the division, right? Like. There are people who are in this movement and using their voice to bring awareness. And then there are people who are against this movement. There's no in between there. And so for the people who are in this movement, we have to contend with the fact that if we don't make this intersectional, to your point, if it isn't led by Black women specifically and other women of color, then we are not going to get to a point of like, I can't think of the right word, but like wholeness in this, it's always going to be that performative allyship. It's going to be the performative stuff. There is a, a, a stubbornness within the movement, of, like the feminist movement in general, the white feminist movement, where there is a refusal to deal with and a refusal to acknowledge and a refusal to sit in um, in a way that allows black women and other women of color to speak and to lead in this stuff. When I started getting really involved in anti-racism work like six years ago, you know, I'm like new and kind of naive and and bumping around in different places. And two of the most difficult places that I hit were uh, evangelical Christian spaces and feminist spaces. 
white feminist, white evangelical spaces. Those were the most resistant to discussions about race and racism. And so, you know, for a while I'm like, hey, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm a feminist, but I'm not identifying one way or the other. This is something that has to be dealt with and, you know, but I don't know that it is going to be anytime soon. And that's why I was saying earlier, yes, there are pockets of communities. They tend to be communities that are working toward racial justice, because in that, you know, I think of um, the statement that your liberation is bound up with my liberation, right? And until everybody's free, nobody's free. And the reality is until Black women are free, none of us are free. And so for me, my role as a white woman who is seeking to divest from that, and I don't want to get like too deep into that for listeners, but my role is to take the, uh, you know, the instruction from my black and brown um, comrades in this work and in this movement. Um, So I'm not sure that answers the question but well, it, it does. It does bring a follow-up question, I guess. Um, and I want to get into the religious question too uh, here in a minute. But I'll follow. So I'm uh, reading through a book right now. Uh, well, really reading through Obama's memoir. If you have not read it, please read it. It's fantastic. Um, but uh, it's yeah, so it's, good when he. There's a lot of words there. It's a lot of words. Um, yeah. So good when he reads it too. Uh, but I'm also reading another book called Hood Feminism by by Mickey Kendall. Uh, and again. Yeah, it is a very uh, different conversation that's that's being had. But but Jen, I, I you said, hey, I've been in these uh, evangelical spaces, I've been in these uh, these feminist spaces, and that's where I've gotten the most pushback. I hear you full on on that. Mine have been evangelical spaces, and uh, more recently, white liberal spaces are really interesting. I'm not racist. Yes, you are. <laughs> you still are. Um, but when when it comes to the the conversation about Black feminism, black women being erased, you get into uh, evangelical spaces and you hear things like, let's not go to church. Right? Like, okay, there's a pack phrase, right? You you start to get the rhythms and, and the, the uh, can you Can you repeat that? Because it was so faint. Okay, all right. So, hey, let's not go to church. Let's be the church, right? Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. That's a cool, catchy slogan, right? Um, and... Uh, you've got your your series. You, you, hey, you know, in January, there's going to be a series about tithing if you're in, in, in a Christian space, right? Uh, you know, there's going to be a summer series if you're in evangelical spaces, right? So these things, you know, these rhythms and these catchphrases and, you know, the movements. Well, I also feel like when we're talking about black women specifically being erased within uh, the Me Too movement and, and, and femini- the conversation around feminism in general, I feel like there are now catchphrases like black women are being erased and it's all white women saying it like, is it, it almost feels like as long as I acknowledge it, we don't actually have to do anything about it because black women are still over here having an entirely different conversation while white women are fully admitting that black women are being erased, but they're not here. So let's move on. That's, that's what I'm seeing actively happen. The last part's not said, but it is the action that takes place after acknowledging, oh yeah, black women are being erased. Moving on, that, that's, what, that's what seems to be happening. So any thoughts on that from any of you? I think, oh. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jen. I'll just be really quick. That's why the follow-up for me was, 
we have to be listening and learning and having the leadership of black women and coming under that as, as white women speaking for white, for white women myself, um, that is one of the answers. And so that's what I leave you with. So Reem. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to say something like, um, like it's not enough to just invite people to the table to talk. Um, this is, I, I was, listening to Bettina Love recently um, and she talked about, it was like, we made the damn table. You don't need to invite us. Right. <laughs> um, and so I, I just can't help, but think um, it's not enough to invite uh, black women to come speak. I mean, not directly in your show, but it's actually, we should go and learn and go and be under their leadership, not because we asked them, but because they are. Um, because they are in, in leadership positions. So you, I don't, it's, it's our job as, non, so I, we use non-black people of color, right? So for it's, for me as a non-black uh, person of color, I need to seek out my learning, not force them to teach me. Um, and I need to seek out the leadership. Um, and so in this case, particularly right now in our conversation, yeah, there are no black women voices and, and that's hard. And that's, frustrating and anyone listening onto this podcast is probably going to be thinking well it was watered down it was whitewashed right not I mean but I mean ideally and hopefully that it's not just a moving on moment but it's a well I'm going to actively seek out those voices and center them and elevate them and uplift them um if that makes sense yeah Ruth, uh, um, Ruth, Jen. Oh, Jen, I, Jen was speaking up. So go ahead, Jen. That's okay. Um, I, I have a few different thoughts here. I just want to get out about it. Is um, I feel like as well. Um, well, one, we talked about how men are speaking up about Me Too. Okay, and that that's an you know phenomenon. I don't think that was planned. Um, that added to, for example. Um, the, the black man experience about being falsely accused. I think that that is part of the victimhood of rape culture as well. Uh, in addition to that, the fact that we don't even get real, you know, um, newsworthy coverage until, you know, Alyssa Milano comes on is, is further evidence of silencing the voice of women of color. Right. And saying that that value doesn't work. And I think that those both are really important to to give room and voice to. Um, and just like Jen was saying, until we're all free, we're not free. And so I think the problem with the way that we talk about Me Too is we still see it as a women's issue rather than, you know, everybody can be assaulted. Um, you know, it needs to be broader. It needs to be all encompassing. And we also need to value the victimhood and the voices of those that are victims equally. And it, it can't just be the white women. And until we do that, we're not going to value, you know, um, the person speaking up who is a person of color. And I think that's something we all need to really work on. And particularly, I think the biggest evidence of some of the lack of um, the equality is in our court system. You know, 
we do not prosecute a lot of people who assault uh, black women or people of color. And I think that that is a huge area of reform that needs to be focused on more because for centuries, black women have been victims and not even seen as victims. And that's a problem. And I just, I think that we need, we are aiming too small in a sense with the movement and we need to be able to open that up and realize that there is room for all at the table to give their stories, to give their voices and to one, hear them and to prosecute you know until we until we talk about the prosecution of these crimes it's great to give a, a voice and i i think we have seen more of that um but i think we need to see as well an increase of that prosecution rate so many women so many men um of all the races they they do not get the validity of that in in their circumstance. And I mean, not all assaults are at the same level, you know, obviously not all are rapes. Um, and, and that's, I guess, a good thing, right. To some degree as well, but they're all, they're all assaults. And I, I just think that we need to get to where we can actually have a system, a court system where we all get, the protection that we should have. Ruth? Um, just listening to everybody's contributions and, and glad to hear them and uh, thinking that what the Me Too movement is about is about lifting up the voices of people who are vulnerable and because of that vulnerability have been assaulted in some way or another. And I think that women tend to be more in touch with their vulnerability than men are. And I think that a person of any race can be vulnerable, but that certain vulnerabilities speak to listeners differently. And so they get treated differently. And that's, and that's wrong, of course. You know, you'd want anybody who's been assaulted to be able to prosecute, to be heard. And I agree that we're a long way from that happening. Um, statistically, um, yeah. Well, and I well, just think of, oh, fine. sorry. No, um, Kimberly Crenshaw is the one who coined the term intersectionality, right? And we have a lot to learn in that, but I think that the thing that this discussion has really brought up is the importance of that. And for me, in my journey toward anti-racism work, the thing that I've learned, it really wasn't until I started um, deconstructing like concepts of social constructs like race that I started to then deconstruct and understand social concepts like gender and, and just different behaviors and things. And it's really like to Jen's point, she's talking about, well, we need this legally, but legally it's an outpouring of what we are as a society. And so what we're talking about is enormous shift on so many different levels. And that's really overwhelming 
because it's a lot easier to talk about, okay, hey, let's do this. Let's test all of these rape kits. Let's start there. And then let's go on to step two. We like our steps to be neat and orderly. The reality is, though, that we have so many things and so many layers underneath this. And once you start pulling at one thread, all of the other threads start coming away. And so I think that um, I don't have like a solution or an answer to this other than we need to do what we can do to be learning and reading and listening and committing to a more just, equitable society that involves tearing down a lot of comfortable systems for people in majority power in this country at this point. So I'll just say that. Yeah. Amen. And the thing that we're pulling at, of course, is power. And you start disrupting who has the power in a, in a society. And yeah, everything's going to crumble and shift and shake. And I think that's what we've been seeing. I think that's what the four, last four years have all been about is shifting in, in who's got the power and then the uh, pushback to that. So then let's... Give me one sec here. Can you guys hear me okay? All right, cool. Uh, my sound changed real quick. There we go, speaker. Okay. Uh, so I, I want to dive into uh, kind of the topic of, of your book, Ruth. I, I think uh, so in the media, we've seen the Me Too movement really impact uh, some high-profile individuals in the entertainment industry, Harvey Weinstein uh, probably being the biggest, Bill Cosby probably being the next. Uh, a lesser spoken of space is the religious sphere, right? And we have three women on this panel who are from a Christian tradition. We have one woman who's from a Muslim tradition. Um, how do you believe the Me Too movement has impacted religious spaces? Have those spaces been helpful or harmful in the new push to call sexual abusers to account? I'm going to guess I can get a little at Ruth's answer here, given the provocative subtitle of your book, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. So let's throw the question to you first, and then I'd love to throw it over to to Reem uh, next. Gain steam. I was so hopeful that the church would be a leader in in this justice movement, I thought, here's an opportunity because Jesus is all about empowering women and about uh, lifting up the voices of the vulnerable. And uh, so it seemed to me that it would be, you know, a no brainer, like Christians should be at the forefront of this movement. Like we ought to be at the forefront of the civil rights movement or any kind of movement for justice. But what I saw was kind of the opposite, not only lagging their feet, but sometimes just treating the whole movement like it was something that was dirty or they should, you know, shake the dust off their feet. And I just have no tolerance for that and really want the church to see that there is dirt in our own house to clean up. There is abuse that happens when abuse, sexual abuse happens in a church. I think it's especially heinous because there's a second layer than a spiritual abuse. Often abusers use religious language or spiritual stories. And so people are not only victimized in their bodies, um, but in their, in their spirits. I mean, they, they can find their whole faith shaken and, you know, this is completely wrong. And, you know, you want the 
spiritual reality to be a balm, a healing thing, not, not a tool of a victimizer. So yeah, I, I would like to see the church step up and that's what the book tries to do by kind of interweaving stories, current stories of abuse, 10 different stories. And each one is paired with a scripture story. So we can really pull on our history because I mean, scripture is full of stories of abuse too. And some of them, you know, are very instructive. So I, I pull from scripture and kind of intertwine them. And I do stick to stories that are from the Protestant tradition, because I think there's this tendency to always say that your neighbor is worse than you. Like if you're a Protestant to say, oh, it's a Catholic problem, you know, because it did surface, you know, you think back to Spotlight and that movie about um, abuse in the Catholic church. So there was at first this saying, oh, it's a Catholic problem. I remember speaking at a more conservative um, uh, event and there were all these pastors there from a more conservative tradition than myself. And uh, for one thing, I think it stretched them to listen to me as a, yeah, they were like, you, yeah, you shouldn't even be there. Was their thought, right? Well, this is lady talking. Very, very suspicious. Um, (laughs) But they were very happy to point out to me that the very first um, Protestant a pastor who got a lot of negative attention was Bill Hybels from Willow Creek. And they, they kind of were almost gleeful about that because he was in their word, he was an egalitarian as opposed to a complementarian, not to use like real church speak here. But what that means is how do you look at the way women and men relate to each other? Are they equal or are they complementary? which is a word I just I just really hate. It just says that men have one role and women have another role and they fit together, but you know, never the twain shall meet kind of a thing. So there's just this tendency, this human tendency, I think, to say, well, we may have our problems, but we're not as bad as them. And so I just want to kind of back up and say, no, we all have our problems because this is a human problem and we all have to uh, to deal with it instead of hiding. Let me ask you a question. Um, How do you, because obviously you need to be able to talk to different groups, different denominations from a different point of view to meet them where they're at. Um, When you talk to uh, Christian evangelical women who are across the board, more conservative, but do believe in the Me Too movement in that they are absolutely sympathetic towards women who've been abused, who've been assaulted, whether they have or not, um, they will sit and say, uh, yes, I have a role as a woman in the church and I have a role as the wife in my family, but I'm absolutely against sexual assault. I'm absolutely against women being uh, abused in the workplace or otherwise. How, How do you speak to them in a way where they may have extremely conservative views of where a woman's quote unquote place is but they still are completely against the idea of, of having assault be normalized. How do, you, how do you speak to them? I would be very challenging to them. I think partly just in being who I am, being in my own skin, and partly in the way I would kind of deconstruct scripture with them. Um, 
because anybody's against assault. I mean, we don't want to see puppies get hurt, right? I mean, it's it's too easy to say we don't want to see anybody get hurt. You have to look at what the underlying problem, that the problem is the power differential because sexual abuse is always the abuse of power. So anytime you set set up a society or set up a system, I mean, this is the word we haven't used enough yet is system. I mean, this applies both to, to race and to feminism is that you have to look at how the whole system embodies these sinful, what I would call sinful things, or you could call them societal problems if you're not religious, but you know, we have these systemic problems and what, what happens. And, and I think we were kind of touching on this a little bit um, while talking about white feminists being such a, when Calvin was saying that they're such hard folks to deal with, or maybe it was Jen who was saying that. Um, by and large, you know, if you happen to be married to a decent guy and so your life is nice, it's easy to kind of buy into this system that's oppressive to others. And so I would push them to see the ways in which the system is oppressive to others. And it's not enough just to say, well, I have a good guy, so I don't have to worry about it. Um, uh, because that's the default. Um, and that's, I think, why, why there's this animosity towards white women who are, who are doing well. And there's this, this, this function then of saying, the, the issue is not how we're doing as a class, but how I'm doing as an individual, you know, and anytime there's an exceptional individual then who can make it in a given system, they can rise above the system, then the system's not a problem. So I would push them on that and say, but just because you have a nice life or you're married to a nice guy doesn't mean that this isn't a problem. So let's look at why you believe what you believe. And let's look, what I would always default to then is Jesus, you know, and that's that. So that's where I would be grounded, and I would have all our conversations revolve around how I see Jesus interacting with the patriarchy of his day. Reem, let's let's throw uh, the same question over to you in terms of you being in a completely different religious space uh, than than us. Would love to know uh, your your perspective. How's that worked out in uh, in in the mosque, I guess, rather than the church? Yeah, I think that. I might echo a lot of what Ruth was speak is speaking about. Um, but the thing I would start with is that um, Muslim spaces, and I'm going to use that word instead of mosques because Muslims kind of operate outside of mosques sometimes or often. Um, but uh, Muslim spaces are really decentralized. Um, and so we don't have the hierarchy, the hierarchy of the church, um, particularly um, in Sunni classical Islam. Uh, but also to some extent in Shia Islam, which is a little more hierarchical. But, um, and so what happens is that when we talk about these issues um, within the mosque or in Muslim spaces, um, you're going to get mixed messages in the Muslim community. So uh, it's not monolithic. So I've seen men and women stand in solidarity in the hashtag Me Too movement. Um, and I've also seen men fall from grace uh, because of their abuses or in some cases their perceived abuses. So it's, it's that, again, that question of did it really happen or not um, kind of rhetoric. Um, so in 
particularly there's two like really famous cases of spiritual abuse or a sexual abuse um, in right now the Muslim community and particularly this is in the, in the Sunni Islam um, like uh, who are Muslim teachers um, and that's Nu'man Ali Khan and Tariq Ramadan. So Nu'man Ali Khan was like basically um, courting Muslim women, uh, many Muslim women um, at the same time while married. So he's like cheating with multiple people or whatever. Um, and it had some level of spiritual abuse in- involved in it. Um, and that conversation became like a huge, um, like, blowout on social media um, within Muslim communities. And then um, the other one is an even more high profile um, uh, person and that's Tariq Ramadan. He's an international uh, uh, Muslim speaker and he was accused of uh, raping uh, someone named Henda Ariani um, as well as uh, potentially assaulting five other women. And this caused a huge disruption within the Muslim community as whether or not he really did it intertwined with this conversation of like the western agenda to take down muslim leaders who are actually making it and breaking through so it became like this huge conspiracy theory as well at the same time um and so uh those that was kind of like what we were hearing within muslim spaces um for both cases as a woman i believe the the women um and their voices and what they said and if i'm wrong and it was some weird conspiracy it doesn't matter to me because these speakers and these teachers are still kicking it with their following. They're still speaking and they still have a following and people are still learning from them. Um, so for me, it's like, yeah, take them down if they did it. <laughs> um, and if they didn't do it, my bad, you know, you're taking one for the team <laughs> type of thing. Um, the, those uh, who believe them, um, those who don't, I know that's a simplistic way of me viewing things, but I am what I am. Um, Without a doubt, Muslim spaces have a long way to go. Uh, We're not doing anything uh, and uh, nothing compared to like enough to deal with um, sexual abuse in our community. It's usually talked about as like shameful or guilt. Um, You should always, uh, uh, what is it? The rhetoric I heard all the time was like, you can't talk about it because you're not supposed to speak of the sins of others or God will out, uh, will, will publicize your own sins. We talk about that within the Muslim community. And so if a woman was victim to something, she's publicizing someone's sins and therefore she's going to be public. She's going to be um, sin like outed by God or something like that. So there's a lot of rhetoric of keeping silent, keeping quiet, um, dealing with it. What did what again? That rhetoric of what were you wearing? What were you doing? What why were you out alone at night? Um, and so, the, so you'll find like some in some Muslim spaces this strong alliance and solidarity to the Me Too movement and to um, calling out sexual abuses. And then you'll find some uh, narratives, kind of like what Ruth was saying, is that yeah, we're against sexual abuse, but why are you dressed like that, and why are you doing that? So it's it's it it really depends on what spaces you're navigating. Um, because the community is really decentralized, it's kind of hard to talk about like the historical narrative of like the hierarchy in the church, right? Um, but so I guess that's it. And I, I love that answer for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because of, I'm sure, you know, you've seen my wall and, and things that I've said uh, in terms of, you know, supporting uh, the Islamic community. Uh, there's, a narr- there's an American narrative of what Muslims are. 
and you know what Islam is to women, and then you come on like I'm kind of decentralized, and there's no like historic message about this. But this is how it's worked out in particular communities. It depends on where you are. So I think that that gives a, a more human perspective, and it also shows uh, a a bit of I, I guess solidarity or, or crossover with other religious spaces. But I do think in terms of Something that I heard come out from both you know Ruth and Reem uh, were high-profile people who were taken down in those communities. Uh, Bill Hybels is a name that I know. Uh, you said in the Muslim community two names that I could not even begin to pronounce right now, so I apologize. But obviously, I don't even. I think all of the. I think the names that you mentioned, Reem, were probably new for everybody in this group. <laughs> like, because you're fine. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I'm just saying. It's like, hey. High profile for you on like Muslim Twitter. I'm sure there's things like on black Twitter that you've never heard. Right. But uh, it doesn't even hit our radar. But either way, there's still that overlap. But I, I, I think one of the things that I find interesting was still kind of this when what happened with Bill Hybels abusing people, there were people who were like, ride or die, Bill Hybels. Right. And in the Muslim community, I'm sure there are people who are ride or die. You know, with with these two individuals, they're still speaking, right? Um, I do find it interesting because a few years ago, this was a sexual abuse, uh, but it was definitely spiritual abuse. There was a guy by the name of Mark Driscoll who was really, really integral for my spiritual growth at that time. I watched his sermons every single week, and he's out in Seattle and I'm I'm here in Michigan, and I was that guy who was living in mom's basement, watching porn, losing jobs, and this guy comes along as like, this is what it means to be a Christian man. Like, this is, you know, stop watching porn, get a wife, have sex with her, get in the Bible, yada, yada, yada. And I, like, really took that to heart, and I grew, right? And then I started leading other people, and then all this stuff came out about him being spiritually abusive, and I was like, no, 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 that's just people who just want to live with their sin and they don't want to be called to account and Mark Driscoll doesn't have any problems. What were you doing wrong? It wasn't about sex, but what were you doing wrong? Right. And I think that there's this human inclination and I hate to have any kind of solidarity with Trump supporters right now on this, but when someone is clearly doing something egregious, but because of how you feel about the good things that that person has done, you will not address the elephant in the room. Like this person sexually assaulted a bunch of people. Yeah, but he's Cliff Huxtable. He's Cliff Huxtable. He's I mean, like, he was the first black person. On, now I've obviously moved on to Bill Cosby here. So like, that was what it was like in the black community. And so I'm thinking that these are the same things that happen in politics, in religion, in pop culture, People who mean something to someone will make them, and we're talking about the Me Too movement specifically, will make them go, I don't believe the women because this person means too much to me or this person means too much to the culture. I just think cognitive dissonance is a hell of a drug. And we're constantly struggling between these binaries of like good people can't do bad things and still be good people. And it it just, it shows how we are out of sorts with where we place human beings in our own hierarchical thinking. Right. 
I remember but, when when the allegations against Cosby uh, came out um, that um, I, I remember hearing that they had all come out with, not with the intense specificity they did at uh, uh, in the end, but I remember hearing someone say that all of this information had been out earlier and nothing happened uh, because the culture made a collective decision that we don't want to live in a world where Bill Cosby does this. So we're just going to uh, agree to forget it. Well, I think some of it is, so some of it is, is a cognitive dissonance, but I think it's a cognitive dissonance that's part of a self-preservation. Um, if Bill Cosby did this and I believed in Bill Cosby, then I am just as bad as Bill Cosby. And I think that is a reality that an individual just cannot live with if it doesn't work out with everything else that's, you know, that they believe to be true because then they believe that they are too, are the monsters. I'm I'm just really, um, I've been thinking this since Ruth talked is um, I think that part of the, the issue with the religious side ties into what Jen was mentioning earlier. This is Jennifer Moore, by the way, two Jen's confusing. Anyhow, um, about white feminism and how that sometimes that is part of the bigger issue, right? Um, I think it's a part of the bigger issue is in the evangelical or Protestant movement or or religious movement is I think where those kind of intersect. And what I mean by that is um, it is easier sometimes to protect that which gives you comfort. It's scary to um, challenge the the system that you're in, um, especially if you are, I think, uh, a woman who feels, who's been brought up in a system like a Protestant or evangelical system in patriarchy where you know that you don't necessarily um, carry the, the weight of voice that you should in that said movement, or, you know, maybe you are a stay at home mom and you have no form of income or whatever. And these ideas come along and and part of you knows that there is this element of truth to that woman who is speaking out, right? Because you're, you've been raised in that system. You know it, you know, that it protects its own, that it, that it adds value to, I should say, right. It, 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 and which is set up in general to protect the white men, but in particular the men. Okay. Um, and to challenge that is, is I think really scary. It's the, I'm going, you know, you don't want to be the first one to, to speak up or step out, but it's also scary to step out next to that person as a support or an ally because you're scared of what shaking or rocking that boat will cost you. And I think that's part of the abuse though, right? Is that we as women have not only been taught in the system to deal with it silently, to not say anything, right? But we also have been taught that it's going to cost us something when we stand up with our sister or our brother, whoever the victim is. 
um, and say, and say, you know what? I believe her because it happened to my sister too, or it happened to me. But I do think there is a breaking point that we see, for example, in some of the cases that you guys are bringing up, you know, um, Weinstein, um, Kavanaugh, Cosby, where the evidence becomes so strong in our church, even for the the church leaders, that at some point we have to go, okay, wait a second. (laughs) These can't all be false, right? Um, I know I was brought up in a church that's very much victims were essentially, you know, blamed. What was she wearing? What was she doing? Um, But then there was a big church split because one pastor had too many victims, right? And they couldn't deny that he was doing the, you know, both spiritual, mental, and, you know, sexual abuses that he was doing. And the, the leaders did stand up and did kick him out. And some people stood with him anyways and still didn't believe it. But I think there's this tipping point. The problem is we need to move that tipping point. So I asked this question, I think of Ruth a little bit ago regarding uh, Christian women specifically, but we can back off of, of religion here um, and go to just women in general. Um, has, have you noticed, has Me Too made women you know uncomfortable and that they disagree with the direction of the movement? Um, and specifically, perhaps, have you seen a generational difference regarding women's support of Me Too? And this can be obviously anyone, of course. So I, the, st- the story that I was sharing earlier um, about speaking with my family members, I was speaking with elder women in my family. And it was really such a gift of a moment to be able to sit and talk with the elder women in my family about their experiences and what it was like growing up and being married to um, somebody who consistently beat one of my family members and being shielded by the police and being shielded by their church and, you know, and and the men being protected in that situation. Um, And so for me, I've not really seen that. I've seen the opposite, but where I see women, I mean, the reality is we all have internalized misogyny. We all have internalized you know, expressions of racism, of a lot of different things. And I have a lot of friends I know who are really anti me too, but it tends to split down political lines. And so that has been very revealing and troubling to me because, you know, it's like conservative talk show hosts decided to take this on and go to task and create this culture war, you know, conversation out of this. And, um, and so I've experienced a little bit there, but that's really it. I, just to, to kind of comment on that and, and maybe push back a little bit. I've seen both conservative and liberal guys, boys will be boys, um, regardless of who they vote for. Just all of them saying the same thing and me sometimes feeling the same thing. I talked about what I had issues in terms of race and, and believe women earlier, but uh, both conservative and liberal men I have had conversation with like, well, can I do anything? Like, what can I say? I don't want to, I'm not going to say anything. Cause I don't want to get, I don't want to get in trouble. Like you can't even hit on anybody anymore. You can't send a woman a drink at the bar. Just like, like, 
okay, get it. I get there's like a bit of sociology that plays into things. Like, I, I you know, hey, look, you like a woman with particular curves because it's childbearing hips or something like the whole sociology of that goes back millennia. But I think guys like guys who are saying these things, honestly, now that I've read more, now that I've had more conversations with my wife, like, it's, it's like you just really want to get away with being a jerk. Right. That's we, really what it is. You're getting and you're married. You're not going to the bar and giving women drinks. So right. why, why are you having this conversation? Yeah, you're getting the behind the scenes conversations that will happen safely among men. And so for me, like if I'm around just a bunch of white people and the discussion comes up about racism, oh, I hear all sorts of troubling stuff that nobody that they would never say if people of color were present, right? And so it's just that like you're really getting to the heart of and hearing from these people. And I'm not hearing that because I think people are scared of me. No. <laughs> well, let me bring up something. Uh, let me bring up something that was said to me by a woman who is much older than me. I was in a, a, an apologetics program at Biola University uh, a, few, a number of years ago. And uh, I, became, I was becoming more liberal at the time. And it's a very conservative school. And there is a lady who's been on our show, Lori Stewart, great woman. Um, lawyer and i was part of this group i was the only guy and it was all conservative women and brett kavanaugh was being put through the ringer right his confirmation was going on and uh, the accusations were flying and i just said I don't, I don't understand this woman is making a very credible argument that this guy did this to her and i just gotta ask you because their big issue was we want to overturn roe v wade they were conservative Christian women. So that was their one party thing. And all of them had been sexually assaulted. All of them had been sexually assaulted. I said, so would you, Billy, if, if you had been sexually assaulted by someone and they worked themselves up to the ranks and they were about to become a Supreme Court nominee and they would overturn Roe v. Wade, would you want them prosecuted? And all of them said, for the sake of the children, I would stay silent. I would not say anything. Now they were older than me. Yeah. And has so, been so, so, okay. But still, I'm a younger generation, and I'm down here like, no, smash that BS, destroy that. I, and maybe I'm just on the wrong side of the abortion issue. I don't know, but. I was like, no, absolutely not. You do not let your rape go by and let this guy go. There's someone else who can overturn Roe v. Wade. Don't want to be this guy, right? And But it seemed to be like that was a generational difference where young people like me, I'm, I'm in my 40s, but she was in her 60s, so there's still a 20-year gap, where young people are coming along and saying, no, do this now, AOC style, and older people are like, so let's, uh, let's kind of calm down and do some bipartisan stuff. Same thing in the church. Hey, kid, you're fresh out of seminary. I know you got some ideas. You want to flip some tables in the temple, but this is how people keep paying tithes on Sunday, right? So th thoughts thoughts on that. That's the generational differences I've run into, but I'm a guy, and this is about you all. I'm sorry. I keep talking. But I think Ruth, it depends. Oh, oh, go ahead. Uh, Reem, Reem, go ahead. More Ruth. Ruth. Ruth, go ahead. I don't necessarily know that that's generational. I mean, I think those happen to be older women that you were speaking to, but I do know, I mean, I would agree that this breaks down into partisan lines. And I think actually that Brett Kavanaugh is, a, is the perfect illustration of that, because I think that's when it became obvious that, you know, 
the, you brought up the believe women hashtag and, and, and that just became the, the dividing line right there. Um, I know when I speak at churches about that, I've been, I've been hounded severely for bringing politics into the subject is if you can somehow keep it out um, because what you believe about the world affects how you believe about the role of women. And so these women who say they'd give up anything to overturn Roe v. Wade, what they're really evincing, evidencing is their bottom line belief that the role of women in God's good earth is to bring babies into the world. And don't anybody mess with that. I mean, and, and, and you can't hardly even poke at that before people just lose all civility. I mean, it's so, it's so fundamental to so many people's worldviews that the role of women is to bring babies into the planet. And God said so. And you can't, you can't talk about female agency over their bodies or why men would get to make a decision about how women's wombs do or do not bring forth life. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's, I suppose it's generational on, on some level, but I think, I think it's more than that. I think there's this whole worldview that lies underneath it. And I'd love to hear from the other women here how that would play out. If there's a different worldview, you know, Reem in your world or, or how important baby making is. I think I was going to say something a little similar, um, but generally speaking, everyone that's around me has this, a similar view as me. Is like they uphold the Me Too movement and they're in solidarity with it and everything. Um, but there, there's there are times where, like for example, I'll hear from uh, Muslim women, particularly if they are older, um, don't talk about your harassment, right? Don't talk about it, otherwise you're not going to get married. Like that's the conversation. You're not going to get married. You have to lie about it uh, if you're not a pure version type of thing, right? Um, and I think that kind of the marriageability plays into it, and maybe that has to do with reproduction. Um, but the that that aspect kind of gets talked about a little bit because ultimately, um, yeah, the 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 rapist was at fault but you have to deal with the consequences that's and and that's how it's kind of talked about um so I, I like again that rhetoric of like why were you dressed like that and like why were you there in that place like that kind of stuff i still hear from older women but at the same time i do hear some older women who go against the grind like i remember i me and my mom have talked about these kind of stories like happening when she lived in syria as a as a teen and whatnot and she would tell me like she'd be going walking to school because you know back in the day everyone walked to school She'd be walking to school and every day at the same corner um, near her school, this guy would just whip out his penis and like show it off and start jacking off in front of her. And she didn't do anything. I mean, she was just walking to school every day. And eventually she started hearing from family when she brought it up, take another route. You're the idiot for keep for going that same route every day. Right. Um, and so my mom never kind of pushed the the blame on me, like in terms of harassment, because she's experienced that kind of rhetoric. But in the back of her mind, you should like she like that conversation of your marriageability is going to be in question in the future if you do talk about this publicly in a public forum. Like there's still that level of, you know innocence you need to maintain um, that is quote unquote stolen from you when you're harassed. 
you know, in the Christian circles, we talk a lot about sexual purity. And I was just curious if that's kind of, would you use that phrase or something similar, Reem, in your work? Yeah, sorry, I'm on side. Yeah, yeah. Sexual purity is talked about. I mean, not the same language, but yeah, that's basically what it is. Wait, since you're answering that, do, do, it's just for my own uh, curiosity, do you all have like promise rings and weird uh, dances with fathers and daughters, like, like proms? Because that happens in weird evangelical circles. Um, so it's really we don't, weird. No, actually, but we have something that's funner. Okay. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's not blunt. a word. Okay. You have a PhD. You know that's not a word. <laughs> I'm allowed to be an idiot. I, embra- I, embra- I embrace my idiocy. Okay, like I have, I, I don't pretend to be holier than thou just because I have a PhD. But God, like God. basically, um, I remember as a kid, this was like the greatest thing ever. We had all girl proms um, in, our, in our Muslim spaces. And it was like obviously that usher song like getting hot in here it was just like a honestly like just a hormone fest of girls like grinding up on each other it was the greatest thing ever um so it i mean so that's what we kind of do we don't do the promise rings where i mean you just the assumption is you're not going to date the assumption is you're not going to have sex i mean people do there's huge statistics within the muslim community there's a study done by dr samira ahmed on like the muslim uh, muslim youth a few years ago and they talk about the rates it's a, it's it's like consistent with the rest of american um youth right but um but i guess if you're more in the religious circle circles they will accommodate you know segregated um spaces and i i actually embrace segregated spaces because people need to have their like affinity groups and hanging out with their people in order to be their fullest selves because masking is too much you know um i just uh, had i wanted to to chime in too though when we were talking um, about all of this is I feel like at least in my experience and you guys feel free to, to chime in if your experience is different. Um, I think that sometimes there, there are these generational differences that I've experienced, um, but they're not in, they're not in that things have been different or that assaults weren't happening. Um, it's more in, a difference of how to deal with those assaults. And what I mean by that is there's definitely, and some of this is, I think, survival, right? Um, Especially in a world where it was not okay to speak up um, and there was not very much defense, if any. Um, I think women have a long history as a whole um, of learning how to deal with that assault and move forward and try in some way to redeem what was left and not give that assault the vindication of stealing the rest of their life or stealing more than it stole. And I think that when women didn't have a voice and when prosecutions didn't happen, in a way, the only thing they did have was to control how they moved on. Right. And what they did from that point and to not give that perpetrator any more than they already stole. Right. And so what I have seen come out in these talks is that most of those older women who still think that you should not ruin his life or, you know, not make too much of a fit 
a lot of them have stories. And they were told to keep quiet. And they were told to forge on. And I think a lot of them are doing their best to try to help other women do what was all they could do, right? Is to move on and to move forward and to keep going and to not let it end the life they had. And they, in some way, were able to find some strength and joy, hopefully, in what they went on to. Um, And as much as that's painful, I feel like it's important because um, it, it shows us how prevalent that assault is and that we have this shared story no matter how we deal with it. And that's what a big problem it is too. Let me ask you, uh, do any of you have or come across uh, conservative allies who are otherwise pretty conservative in their politics or, and or religion, but still are allies in the Me Too movement? I know a lot of people that are um, allies in rape issues and um, Me Too that are, on every other issue, probably against liberal stances. Yeah, I I would echo something similar. And I just want to say, Jen, thanks for that. What you said about the generational differences, that was really beautiful and really well, well said. And I just would completely agree. Thank you, Ruth. That's why I married her, Ruth. Why I married her. Let's go to the next question, Kent. Um, do we want eight or 10? Eight. Okay. Um, misogyny, uh, and Calvin's last comment about why he married her was not misogynistic at all. I think uh, she's has, awesome. That's all I'm okay. saying. Yes, I think yes, she's yes, pretty yes, cool. Yes. Has, uh, misogyny, has misogyny infiltrated the Me Too movement? Um, in what ways do men who try to be a part of this movement um, make mistakes in their support of it. Quote, unquote, support. Mm-hmm. Quote, unquote, support. Um, I think it's a great question and I need a little more time to answer it. But I think uh, what I see is for men who want to be allies and supportive end up mansplaining. Um, and I just can't help but think, just shut up and listen, bro. <laughs> like, does that that kind of like is the thing like so take it in learn from it speak to your brothers don't speak to me about it um and don't try to take the limelight of the movement or be the face of the movement to prove that you're an ally that's kind of what where i guess i was thinking let me explain what reem means there Uh, (laughs) but no moving on that's a better idea also not trying to show how woke you are or how much you get it like just let let that person be there. I, I will say, for example, when I got assaulted um, a few years ago, I immediately called my husband um, because he's the closest person to me. And one of the best things he did was to listen to my whole story, ex- you know, just whatever I needed to say in that moment, and then immediately say, essentially something to the, I don't remember verbatim, but something to the regards of what do you need for me? What do you need for me? 
And I think that, or how can I support you? Something like that. I feel like not trying to figure it out, not trying to fix it. Cause he couldn't do either one. Um, I think that we just need more of just listening and not trying to figure it out. Just how can I be there? How can I support you? How can I, what can I do and listen to the person? Yeah. I want to echo what Reem said about go talk to your dudes, basically. Like we need that. It is essential. Um, I will occasionally come across a post from a man who is taking this on and he's taking ownership of it and he's talking to other men. And in those very rare moments, when I see that, I am deeply moved by that. And I I recognize the power in that and the importance in that. So I, you know, like I don't necessarily see men taking over or co-opting the movement, but maybe I'm just in a different space Um, I'm really curious who came up with this question. And like, usually when you come up with a question, you have a reason or an example or something you've stumbled across in that. um, I just want to see men in general really step it up and start looking at the way that misogyny also harms them. This contemplation about the toxicity of our current culture's definition of masculinity and how that is absolutely robbing men from having meaningful relationships with other men, with their children, with women, you know, and just communities in general. So if this can become this communal issue, this isn't just a women's issue. And it's not just a women's issue because it doesn't just affect women, but even if it were to only affect women, it is not just a women's issue. It's, it's indicative of a deeper diseased state of our souls in, in our cultures, and that needs healing. And so I would just say I encourage men to really like dig into this. If it's uncomfortable, that is a point that you can recognize you need to lean in even more. Because that discomfort exists for a reason. And it's probably some level of fragility, shame, defensiveness that you feel, um, but not pushing into this together in a sense, separately. You know, I'm not saying we can all hold hands and kind of walk through this together. But by not pushing into this and not leaning into this, you guys are missing an opportunity to live a freer, more liberated life as men as well. Do you, um, Janet, just to piggyback on this, I just want to ask really quick is, do you, um, I I think that there is a hesitancy for men to, they're afraid to get it wrong so they don't speak up sometimes. And I think we just need you to speak up because you have the power. Ooh. Ooh. I have commentary on that, but we are running out of time. And Ruth, you've not been able to weigh in on this question, and I still want to ask question 10. So any thoughts on this, or we'll just move on to 10? Oh, I just wanted to add that um, one of the things that we encourage people to do in churches is to form groups that people can tell their stories. And I think it's becoming more commonplace for women who've been victimized to tell their stories. That's the whole point of the hashtag Me Too, right? But I would like to push it even a little further. And I even brought this up to a church just this morning in their Sunday school class online. 
And I said, my vision for the church is that people, men could have courageous conversations with each other in which they might even be willing to look at their past behavior and recognize times when they abuse their power or they push their power too far. And in hindsight, they realize what they did wrong because I don't think Brett Kavanaugh is unusual. I mean, I think his story is extreme. But I've spent a lot of time in wealthy churches, and I, I know these kind of guys who have been indulged. And a lot of men have been indulged, and they have learned that it's okay to push their power. So, yeah, we acknowledge that church pews are full of women who've been victims and men who've been victims, but that also means that they're full of victimizers. So why can't we start really bravely having people tell those stories? So that's just me pushing the envelope. So uh, I was going to ask question 10, uh, uh, kind of a question about existing laws and whatnot. And I don't think that's been the trajectory of this conversation. So we're going to bypass that. But there, there have been some things that have been said. And Dave has given us an extra five, five, 10 minutes to close this out. So let, let's take that time here real quick. Some things were said about, you know, men having, you know, real open, honest relationships with men, getting their, you know, getting their, their boys, so to speak, and having these tough conversations. Uh, I teach an anti-racism class uh, online, a free class uh, called Black American History, because I'm a historian by trade, and I kind of work to look at how history still affects the present. Uh, and it's been a good class. Uh, but one of the things that I admit at the, at the outset is here are a few people that are going to be, here are a few voices that are missing from this class that I am teaching. Uh, the voices of black women are going to be uh, missing and the, the voices of black LGBT people are missing and, and black trans women, not that I should maybe differentiate between trans women and, and black women, I don't know, but that's a black community issue. We can have those conversations. Um, but either way, people have pushed back saying, hey, Calvin, you should include those voices. You should be speaking up on those things as well. I'm like, well, it's a six-week six course. It's an hour and a half, and that's not my lane. And so what I'm getting at with people is, hey, here are the voices that are strong in those areas. Go listen to them. And people have said, and I think liberals specifically, I grew up conservative, I've become more liberal, but one of the things that liberals like to do, especially around intersectionality, is no, you're an expert in X thing here, but because this intersects with what you do, you need to be able to speak about this with perfect fidelity as well. And so it's like, you need to speak up for black trans women. Like, I, that's not my lane. And if I do, I'm going to do more damage. I'm going to do more damage. And so when it comes to issues of feminism, I've read one, no, no, two books about feminism. Hood feminism and asking for it about rape culture. Those are the two books I've read about feminism. For me, to now speak, you're going to read mine, right? Absolutely, yes. I have not gotten yours yet. It's on its way, uh, but I'm going to read yours as well. Uh, my wife is also excited to read it. But my thought is, if I'm the guy getting out there and speaking, I'm doing more damage to your cause than good because I don't know enough. I have enough. Put, I'm still pushing back on like, why do worry about black guys? So I should not be the person out front going, hey, believe women, because I've got so many of my own doubts 
I should still be in the audience shutting up and listening, but people still want me to talk about those things because it's got overlap. Here's the thing. Women would not have the right to vote if we did not have allyship. When you don't have the voice, you have, like, to some extent, I want us to just have our own voice. That'd be great. But the truth of the matter is the system's not set up that way. But also the thing I think of is I parallel it and I would, I would put it to you, Calvin, and I would say, if you're talking to me as a white woman about what it looks like to be an ally or a co-conspirator in anti-racism, do I get to sit back and just be like, you know, I don't know that much. And if I go try to talk to my cousins about mm-hmm. this, I'm going to screw things up. Hell no. You're going to tell me get your butt in the books, get reading, get listening, get talking and have those conversations. You're going to screw things up. You're not going to be an expert. I mean, that could get into an entirely different conversation about our culture and white supremacy culture requiring that you have a level of perfection and expertise before you feel like you can go and speak. But you as a man, anybody as a man can go and say, look, man, like, the buck stops here. Hey, I'm learning about this. I'm reading this book. I'm doing this thing. So I see a lot of parallels in, in, you know, deconstructing white supremacy and deconstructing patriarchy yes. in this regard. So that's well, just, what I, I guess where I come in too. So I equally am learning Calvin about, um, you know, I, I am obviously a white woman married to a black man. So I am learning more and more about um, the black experience that I, I did not have. Right. Um, and the history that I was not taught. And so just like I can go into some spaces and speak that you're, you're not in right. Um, to other white people, right. You can go into spaces. I can't speak as a woman. And I think there is a parallel doubt there. It's, we don't want to reduce it down to them being the same. I understand that. But I think we need allyship. We need it. It doesn't need to be sometimes the face or the voice of the whole movement. Um, I think that's where we were talking about earlier about like Alyssa Milano, for example, getting the credit versus um, the person who actually started it, right? We need people of color in that spotlight and in that leadership as well. But allyship is important. Yeah, um, I just I was thinking from the perspective of your question from as a teacher. I mean, I'm not an expert in everything. um, And I teach tons of topics that I'm, I have to just do the research before I before I do it, right, or before I teach it. But one of the things that I find the most beneficial is um, the use of primary sources and creating, you know, a list of uh, sources for my students to access. So you could easily just come up with like a list of recommendations to your students that say, well, you know, this is this is the authority on trans issues in, in Black America, and this is the authority on this, and this is the authority on that. And I can't necessarily talk to it fully, but I mean, I can engage in the conversation as a new person in this area um, with you. And so it kind of... Uh, puts an equal footing in the conversation a little bit. um, But it also kind of invites the space to have that conversation um, just so that you give it its due. Um, But yeah. Not to jump in again, but I just had a really quick, not to jump, not to jump in again. Um, Sorry. I just have a really quick thing. Um, So Cal and I together, we always say when we mess up, I'll do better. 
It's a thing we do because we do mess up. We're human. And I feel like the goal should just be that. If we all just try to do better, the world will be better just in general. All right, Ruth, bring it home. What are your, your final thoughts here? What I hear you talking about in that last question is who has authority to speak. And I do think that as a culture, we're moving to understand that the story, personal story is where the strength and the power is. And that's what has the final authority. And I think we're seeing the importance of personal narrative lifted up. And since, of course, we each have our own story, it can become in some sense a box that we live in. I mean, we never transcend our identity. And so it's really important that we hear other people's stories and that we own our own. And that's all we can do. But if we do that powerfully, I mean, I'm speaking as a writer, we're putting that story on the page is everything. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's the work in front of us. And uh, so let's, let's keep doing that. Well, I think that's a, as good a place as any to to end this conversation, I'm glad we were able to solve the problems of sexism and racism in this world. Uh, racism's over. Uh, women are. We're going to run out of topics soon, Calvin. If we keep fixing problems, we like keep this. solving so much, so much. Next week, tune in where we solve all the issues of the gay community. No, <laughs> Uh, but no, hey, this has been great. This has been fantastic. I loved having all of you on. Um, Ruth, where can people find your book? Because uh, you're the, the person who's written. Oh, no, actually, two people on here have written a book. I, I want to know. Okay, so Ruth, where can we find your book? Jennifer Kinney, where can we find your, find your book? Also, plug your book, Jennifer. But Ruth, first, where, where can we find your book? So I have a website that, not surprisingly, is my name, uh, RuthEverhart.com. But you can also find my books on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. And they are available also in Audible. Uh, and so that's, would love to hear from you. Yeah. You've got Ms. the Kenny? Audible there. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, the latest book is a co- co-authored book um, called Check Your Privilege. Lean Into the Discomfort, and it's written by Maisha T and myself and several other authors. You can find it on Amazon. You can also find it at Dirt Path Publishing directly from the publisher if you want to support the publisher there. Awesome. I have a great idea for a book that has never come to fruition, and if I can get funding, (laughs) uh, I can take care of that. I will will call InterVarsity Press tomorrow for you. Um, but in advance. Hey, I want I want to thank all of our ladies for wait wait Reem do you have any published poetry? <laughs> published poetry we should know about? No. Uh, I'm on Instagram. That's about You're it. On Instagram. Yeah, on the Insta. All right, cool. And, and if you want to buy a house, call my wife. Um, so uh, I want to thank all of our lovely ladies for being here uh, tonight. Uh, absolutely fantastic conversation. Uh, would love to have all of you back again. Obviously, I know. Here's, here's a great thing about women. They care about more than just women's issues. So if there's other issues that uh, I, I, I'll send out the email about topics that are coming up and you're like, hey, I'm really passionate about that too, or I got some thoughts. We'd love to have you all back on our show in the future. 
Um, and those of you listening, thanks so much for listening to Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. Uh, make sure you check out our website, leadingquestionsnow.com, where you can find all of our episodes from this season and last, uh, last what, six seasons, uh, bios, a calendar of upcoming topics, and even suggest topics for us to talk about. If you're interested in bringing our program out to your college, university, or organization, email us at hello at leadingquestionsnow.com and we'll get back to you. Don't forget, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and of course, the Podcast Detroit app. Please leave us a review. That's very important. And we will see you next week.